want to get into the Word. And uh, uh, it was gone last week. I was actually at Reality LA uh, speaking for the pastor there, Jeremy Treat. Every August, uh, Jeremy Treat takes a, a month-long break to concentrate on other stuff in the church, and he brings in pastors uh, from the Reality family, and they usually go through the Psalms. So it's like a month of Psalms every August. So I went in there picked the most lamenting, depressing psalm I could find and blasted all of L.A. with emotionally healthy spirituality. It was awesome. So, um, but while I was there, some things happened uh, in, in our country. And I don't, have, I don't have television, and I don't spend my weekends on the Internet. I spend them with my awesome kids. Uh, so I found this out uh, halfway through Sunday, some of the events that happened in Charlottesville. Um, and during the week, uh, bummed that I couldn't be here last Sunday, um, but still felt compelled by the, by the Lord to speak to these issues from the Bible. Um, so we're going to take a break today from our normally scheduled love series to speak about this. Um, but it's not really a suspension of our theme of love, is it? It's just an application of it. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We'll start in Genesis chapter 1. We'll read all the way through to Revelation. And then... <laughs> by then it'll be Thursday afternoon. I'll pray and then we'll get into the sermon. Sound good? You guys, I know this is this can be tough. I hope we can just hear what the Lord says, have patience and kindness with each other, believe the best about one another, but hear, hear what Jesus is saying to the church. Because everything that he says, even when it's hard, it's always good. Jesus is always good. Heavenly Father, please help us today, help especially me, to not say anything stupid, but to only say what is truthful and what is good and what is loving, specifically to say what you have said. Lord, lead our church, lead our church right now into the way that you would have us go. Holy Spirit, pour yourself out upon us with everything that we need right now for life and godliness. Thank you that you have already spoken through your word. From Genesis to Revelation, the God of the universe has spoken. Let us hear your words and be changed by them in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start from a place that, you know, we probably, most of us know. Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the heavens and the earth. If uh, The potency in such an incredible and cosmic story can be seen in even more vividness when you consider the context in which Genesis chapter 1, the creation accounts, were written. Genesis chapter 1 was not written in a vacuum. It was written against the backdrop of many other competing creation accounts in ancient Near Eastern Babylon at that time. We're talking about stories like Enuma Elish and other uh, Babylonian uh, stories, creation accounts 
that told common themes about how uh, their gods, uh, their contemporary gods at that time, created the heavens and the earth and people and the purpose of them. You start to read into them, and I don't expect you to go read ancient Near Eastern texts, but I'll tell you uh, the gist of them right now. Almost all of them had common themes about why people existed. Number one, there were many gods, and these gods were always fighting one another. That seemed to be a common theme in uh, uh, creation literature in the ancient Near East. And it was usually out of conflict and extreme violence uh, in these texts that human beings were created. Uh, For example, in Enuma Elish, they were created out of conflict and violence, and almost always for the purpose of servitude to the gods. Humanity was created as slaves to gods. That was the prevailing narrative of most creation accounts at the time when Genesis was penned. It was written to combat that. And so right off the bat, we get told from the very first verse, God created the heavens and the earth. Very powerful. One God, not many. God created it all. So by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, you get some pretty dignifying, powerful excerpts about the purpose of men and women in the world today. It says, for example, in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. This would have been unprecedented and unheard of. The dignity of a human being being created not as a lower, not as uh, some despicable uh, garbage that is meant to serve and be enslaved to the gods, but made with complete dignity. Still not the same as their creator, they're not gods themselves, but they're made in the image of God, after the likeness of God. What does that mean, to be made in the image of God? It means uh, there are certain imprints on us that are different than animals, certainly. While God made creation and he made things to be good, he made human beings to be distinct and different. The things uh, we could throw in there like uh, our ability to communicate with God. Animals doesn't seem like they can do that. We can hear God, we can speak to God, we can communicate with him. We can hear his voice. We can be led by him. Other things like relationships. Human beings were made to be in relationship with the God of the universe. Uh, and as you read on in the text in verse, uh, verse 28, uh, we were made to rule. We were made to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over creation. Now that doesn't mean that we're to uh, destroy it or uh, subjugate it to, to such things. The language here speaks of uh, cultivating that which God has created. So we're not, we're creative like God, not in the sense that we can create out of nothing, not in the sense that we can call into being things that don't exist as though they do, Romans says that about God, but that God creates and we're able to cultivate what God creates for beautiful beautiful things and for... uh, for his design and for his glory and for the betterment uh, of his creation. So we see that. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 9, verse 5 through 6, we're told that it's wrong for human beings to kill one another. And he grounds that in the image of God in them. 
And he goes a step further in saying that human beings are created equal in the likeness of God. Therefore, it is sinful, wrong, for one human being to kill another or to murder them. Uh, Genesis, by the time we get to Genesis 12, something really interesting happens in Genesis. From chapter 1 to chapter 11, we're talking all this time about these huge cosmic ideas. The creation of the heavens and the earth, right? We're speaking about things like uh, Noah's Ark and the, uh, a universal flood. Huge things. The Tower of Babel. The whole population of the world. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, everything that was so huge and large and uh, global starts to focus very quickly in the narrative on one man, Abraham, and his family who have been given a God-mandated purpose to do one thing. I'll read Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3. You can hear it for yourself or read it on the screen. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you, or nations. In one fell swoop, God gives Abraham, as the narrative begins to focus on one man and his family, God focuses on that family to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. If you want a glimpse of what this is supposed to look like, you can look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. Told you I'd go from Genesis to Revelation. After this I looked, John said, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, it's worship. It's worship and a compelling vision of a great king, something we endeavor to get a small taste of every Sunday. We will get a panoramic and eternal cosmic vision of when Christ finishes what he came to start. That's where it's headed. And so we see the design that we have been created as bearers of God's images, uh, image as expressed in a diversity of very many different people expressed in nations and people groups. That means that any time something comes against that image and that design, it is a distortion of God's good design and treason against his kingly rule. That distortion of design, we just happened to see put on vivid display last week. That's not the only time it's put on display. It's just a very particularly loud time. Uh, probably many of you know the events that happened. For those of you that don't or that just need a, a jogging reminder, I'll try to hit some of those points as briefly as possible. Forgive me if I miss some details. But it started with the removal of a statue, a Confederate statue in Virginia. For one group, that statue reminded them of their southern heritage, and it hurt them to see that statue removed. For other groups, it reminded them of subjection to slavery, and that brought up a lot of pain. 
And so as the statue is removed, a group of protesters shows up to that event to protest the tearing down of the statue. They're dressed in white robes and swastikas and other symbols of, of, of hatred. As a response to that, uh, other counter-protesters show up and a fight ensues. People are injured. A gal about my wife's age is, is killed. I don't want to get burdened with the details. What I want to see is what's at the base of some of the things that, that have happened and that are happening. What we see at the base of this particular movement is often, at least since 2015, been referred to as the alt-right. While it's known for a few values that some of us might find acceptable, that are not the purpose of my sermon today, at the heart of this movement, and what separates them from other good groups, perhaps, is their emphasis on something called nationalism. It's nationalism that I want to speak about this morning. Nationalism, you have to understand, is more than just patriotism. When I speak of patriotism, I'm speaking merely about a mere innocent pride of place, which probably a lot of us have. I have. I love my country. I love being here. Wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Not just my country, but I love Santa Barbara. Wouldn't want to live in Carpinteria or Ventura. I live in Santa Barbara, innocent pride of place. That's fine. Nationalism is more than merely an innocent pride of place. Nationalism involves putting one's culture and national interests above that of others. And it is grounded not in an innocent pride of place, which probably most of us have, but in a sense of superiority over other countries, other nations, and other people groups. Nationalism isn't new to our age. It's all over the Bible. Here's what some excerpts from the Bible have to say about things like nationalism. I think of Jonah. We think of Jonah, we immediately think of a whale. Right? I want to skip the whale and go straight to chapter 4. When God has steered and directed history in order to save hundreds of thousands of people in the Ninevite city, and Jonah a man of God is trying to deter him from doing it. If you read Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, you'll see Jonah trying to put the national interests of Israel above the spiritual good of a different race. And God rebukes him and saves them anyway. One of the first objections that come up when I bring up this topic is, ah, eh, well, what about, you know, what about Joshua? What about those certain periods in Israel's history when they certainly like seem to steamroll other countries for their own good? Uh, I'm so glad you brought that up and asked about it because I preached through Joshua not too long ago. Uh, and I preached through uh, Joshua chapter 6 on the battle of Jericho, the story that usually comes up. And granted, it's a difficult thing. Uh, battles are never easy uh, 
to look at and to accept. But the Battle of Jericho and others like it is far from the caricature that we often think of when we see battles uh, in the Old Testament. The Battle of Jericho, can't get into, into it a lot. You can re- uh, watch a sermon if you want. But the Battle of Jericho, in a summarized form, was not what a lot of people think it was. It was still difficult. It was still a bummer. But it was not a wholesale slaughter of a bunch of innocent people by a powerful Israeli nation bent on stealing land and wiping out an ethnic group. That is not what happened. It was an act of God against a very small but brutal military that God had given centuries to in order to repent and was still doing so in the last throes, which is why Rahab repented. Not only that, but Israel at the time was a theocracy, meaning God was literally the king of a geopolitical nation. Something that is not the same today, meaning we can never do something like what Joshua did today. Ultimately, we have to read stories like the Battle of Jericho in its context and under the overarching umbrella of Genesis 12. That God desires to bless all nations and all people groups through his people. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 through 28, Paul said, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male, no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now what Paul was not saying there is you have ceased to be male because you're in Christ. Nor is he saying you have ceased to be Greek or Jewish because you're in Christ. Or Filipino or Mexican or African American. What he's saying here is that nationalism is no longer the ultimate value in the family of God. The family of God, you being in Christ, is the ultimate value. Allowing for some of those other boundaries by which we used to direct our lives to fall to the wayside. Now, the Russian believer is my brother or sister. The Ukrainian. The Chinese. The Taiwanese. The Spanish, the Mexican, the African-American, the German. If you are in Christ, some of those old boundaries have fallen and we have entered into a new family with new values. In the case of Charlottesville, what we were seeing at its root was nationalism, a specific kind of nationalism. There's all types of kinds, right? This was a specific kind. It was white nationalism. It was essentially people saying, our country is better, and only we should have it. White nationalism merges nationalism with separatism. In its worst cases, it becomes white supremacy. Here's what scripture says about racism. We see in examples like Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, a long time ago, where a group of people were trying to elevate themselves as the most important thing. 
And God says no. And his solution is pretty interesting. He turns them into a variety of different ethnic groups and languages. We see it again in the book of Acts when Paul is addressing the Athenians. In a time when the Athenians were the most powerful group, most culturally influential, the most savvy. And the Athenians believed that they were superior to other races. In fact, they had a term for other races that weren't themselves Athenians. They called them barbarians. And Paul, in an evangel- uh, evangelistic address to the Athenians, says in Acts 17, 26, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. In, fact, uh, in other words, we're all from the same human stock. We're different but we're equal and the same in that regard. Racism does not fit in with the narrative of God's plan or his heart. But you have to understand, even in its subtle forms, nationalism or separatism, these things are still incompatible with the gospel of Jesus who has chosen people for himself, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, from every nation and every tribe and every tongue to express their worship to the king through who he made them to be. All these forms, whether it's nationalism, separatism, or full-blown racial prejudice, are completely antithetical to the heart of God. And not just what makes national TV, but also racial prejudice and those other forms when they show up in seemingly harmless and socially acceptable ways, which happens every day. A distortion against God's design, racism is evil. We saw it in vivid detail, yes, on the other side of the country. But it shows up every day in subtle, socially acceptable ways. As believers in Christ, we should denounce those two. The first place I recommend that we denounce racism, nationalism, and separatism is in our own hearts. What we're seeing all around us are Christians who are professing the name of Jesus and yet are elevating blood and soil above love for other people. Sometimes it looks like Charlottesville, Virginia, and other times it looks like a racist joke. Other times it looks like mistreatment. Other times it looks like an abuse of privilege and power. Sometimes it looks systemic, Other times it looks institutional. Sometimes it's just a thought that resides in each of our minds. Other times it's a socially acceptable form of the same. But according to the heart of God and the word of the gospel, it's all evil and should never be named among Christians or the Christian church. Galatians chapter 2, verse 12 through 14, we see the Apostle Peter of all people falling to this sort of thing. The very guy who got the vision that God would gather different people groups together, Jew and Gentile, 
who sees and, and, and received a vision in which God essentially told Peter, don't call someone that's uh, unclean that I have made clean. Later finds himself in a, a, a social situation in Galatians chapter 2 where Jews and Gentiles are eating together and they're separating from one another and Peter feels the pressure and he uh, pulls away, separates from Gentile believers. Paul says in Galatians 2, before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but then he, came, but, uh, he was eating with them, conversing with them, fellowshipping with them, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, feeling the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to, uh, to Cephas or to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, he calls Peter, one of the pillars of the church, out on racism. Still today, Countless people are claiming Jesus, showing up on Sunday, singing the songs, worshiping the Lord of the nations, and still supporting a nationalistic fear steeped in insecurity and lust for power. And we as Christians need to find the boldness and courage to be able to say with the Apostle Peter, that is not in step with the truth of the gospel. The Apostle John takes it a step farther in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, whoever says he is in the light hates and hates his brother is still in the darkness. We need to constantly be checking our footsteps to make sure we are not in the darkness. Easiest way to find that out, as John would later say, is if we're loving our neighbor. Nationalism, which builds identity on race not on Christ, is at the root of this problem as we know it today. And even though there are some well-intentioned people within some of these movements there for other reasons, we must recognize a problem when we see it. Nationalism and racial prejudice simply cannot be reconciled with the God of the Bible. It is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is evil and from the very pit of hell. And it is what Jesus came to destroy. Perhaps if you were honest, and I hope Messy Church has taught us to be a little more honest, even if it's just in the safety confines of our own hearts, perhaps that person is you. And to you, I don't throw guilt because I've got some of those same things in my heart. Maybe a different quality, maybe a different flavor, maybe something entirely different. But maybe you're looking at this and you resonate with it and I want, you to invite, I want to invite you to repent and to step out of the darkness and into the light because you were called to better things. There are a couple defense mechanisms that we as Christians might sometimes throw up that keep us from the better things that Jesus promised. One of them is a phrase that I often hear when I get too specific about the way that Christians are supposed to live. It's this, you're getting too political. I 
don't think I'm political at all. But I, I'm using specific terms in order to inform that. When I say I'm not a political pastor or preacher, I mean, I'll never tell you who to vote for. Have I ever told you who to vote for? I'll never condone one party over another. It's not my place and it's not my job. And I don't want to do it even if I had the right to do it, which I don't because it's illegal. <laughs> I'd prefer to teach you about Jesus. And for you to be so immersed in Jesus, you just know how to make informed decisions in the ballot box. So when I say I'm not a political preacher, I don't think I am because I don't do those things. But I have, in the course of the 600 sermons that I have preached at my time here at Reality, often been confronted with this phrase, you're getting political. What I feel like after all these years people mean is that I'm striking a little too close to home, to their home. Anytime I speak about issues that are real, I always get this phrase, whether it's speaking about refugees or immigrants, getting political now, or when I, uh, in the times that I've spoken out on abortion, you're getting political now. When I've spoken about the poor and the least of these, you're getting political now. And even recently, speaking about racism, getting political now. What I think people want me to do is to preach ambiguous stories about Jesus' love that are safe, that don't actually mess with your lives. And I just want to get all my cards on the table today. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Wasn't looking for a hand clap, but thank you. I like it. <laughs> and you shouldn't either. And here's why. Jesus gets in your face. And there isn't a single person in this room whose independence won't be challenged by the worldview of Jesus Christ. He will challenge every part of the way you live your life. For some of you, it might be racial prejudice. For others, it might be the way you handle your money. For others, it might be your sexuality. For others, it might be relationships. For others, it might be something else. But Jesus will not leave you the same way he found you. He will change you. He will challenge you. He will call you to a better way of life. And it's not safe. That's what I believe a lot of people mean when they tell me not to be political. Not in the true sense of the word, which I honor. But they don't want me to, they don't want me to apply Jesus' words on love to actual details. The other thing is the word racism. A very hotly charged emotional button that nobody wants to be around. At the, at the slight mention of that word, everybody runs because nobody wants to admit that they struggle with those things. And I get it. We might readily admit to pride and other things like that, broken relationships, a lack of humility, stuff like that. But racism has become so charged and evil as it, as it is that few of us probably would admit that in a group of people. I get it. I want to make it a little easier for you and me. Because at the root of all prejudice is really fear. And who doesn't struggle with that? It's the fear of people you don't understand. 
That's where racism comes from. It comes from not understanding people. And out of that lack of understanding, being afraid of them. Who can admit to that? I can. If we were to speak about the root of racism, which might be fear, I think a lot of us might have an easier time admitting, myself included, that there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. We have a little bit of the Athenians, maybe in all of us. But following Jesus will confront that. And we should be glad when he does. Because the way of Jesus is better. He came to bring the kingdom of God's righteousness to bear on broken people. Who here will call him Lord? Who here will listen to what he has to say? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 16, we get a panoramic view of how Jesus came to destroy barriers like that. It says in Ephesians 2 that in his own body on the cross, when he died on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated races like Jew and Gentile by creating in himself one new people from two groups. In the cross, he destroyed racial barriers among so many others. But notice that he didn't, in breaking down barriers, simply create a homogenous group of people that all look the same and act the same and have the same cultures. Rather, we see glimpses, not only in Revelation, but in Acts chapter 2, of the beautiful vision of many people coming together to worship Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4 through 11, it says that on the day of Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of those who are speaking from Galilee? Then why do each of us hear in our own native languages, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear these Galileans telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. In one outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the curse of Babel is reversed in such a way that many people come together in their own cultures, in their own language, in their own makeups with one voice to proclaim the God of the nations. God has a plan for this world. And it's not separatism or fear or insecurity. It is to be a blessing through the church to all the nations, meaning we have a responsibility to that plan. And if 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 through 3, has held any weight for us, that it doesn't matter if we have giftings, or how much we give away, or how good we are at something, or even whether we speak in tongues or not, if we have not love, we have lost we have lost it, then may we take this seriously and ask God to do a work in our hearts and a work in the hearts of the church universal.
This is a chance for the church to shine. I want to give us a little way forward. One, you should, you should start reading your Bible if you haven't already. You sh- we should not get our, our theology from politicians. Okay? We should not get our theology from news pundits. We shouldn't get our theology from anything except from the Bible. Maybe you want to start. I would say a great place to start is by opening up any one of the four Gospels and just let her rip. Couldn't think of a better place than to start than Jesus. Read Matthew or Mark or Luke and John and see what he's like, what he does, how he treats people, what his plan is. Let it change you from the inside out. Another thing we can do is to recognize who our real enemy is. So on some sides, people are really hurt, and they lash out in violence. But Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our enemy is not actually people. It's not even the ones that are full of hatred, because God loves them too. God loves those people that are steeped in hate groups. He came to save them and to change them. Our real enemy, Paul says, is that we do not war against flesh and blood. We war against principalities and powers and rulers of this darkness. Our real enemy is the devil. And the way that we fight is not by fighting people who God loves, but by picking up our spiritual arms against the enemy. One way that we can do this, Paul said in another letter that he wrote, is by casting down lofty opinions that have raised themselves up against the knowledge of God. Taking into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That does mean speaking the truth. It does mean speaking rightly about God. It probably should mean prayer since we're in a spiritual battle and racism has deep roots in spiritual oppression. We should probably pray for freedom. We should also speak the truth. I should probably add to that a note of love, that we should get to know people that we don't know. Maybe you're afraid of people. Maybe you find them strange. Maybe you cross over to the other end of the street when they're walking by you. I don't know. Maybe the best thing for some of us to do is to meet people and to talk to them, and to listen to them. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7 tells us to gain understanding. Get to know people. Open your arms to those who are hurting. Allow the love of God to permeate your heart. And when necessary, and when appropriate, call out things like nationalism and racism when you see it, even in its most subtle forms. I'm going to ask Cody to come on out. Nikki Fong. Anyone else you got back there? Sam? <laughs> I, uh, I want to ask that if I've said anything wrong, that you would forgive me having to throw something like this together in a week that there might have been a misstep. I do that all the time. If there's something wrong that's, you know, that's just like lodged in your soul right now, 
I just want to ask that you would you'd forgive me and not let that deter you from seeing God's heart for people. Please don't let my, my lacking in communicative skills deter you from a love for the nations and for a hatred of things that are legitimately bad and evil. Let's enter into a time of singing together in worship. And as we do, let's just meet God together. Let's ask forgiveness in places where we need it, and let's repent where appropriate. I'll be joining you in that, requesting forgiveness and repentance. Ask for courage. If you guys are afraid of people, that's a real thing. I don't know many people that aren't afraid of somebody. You can step out in faith. Join the teams after the gathering and begin to pray for the nations. Watch as God, it's God begins to shape your heart for the people that he loves. As we worship, let's just ask God to meet us. Let him rearrange the furniture of your heart and ask for boldness and courage to do whatever he calls you to do in the weeks to come. But when he does it, you step out in faith, my brother and sister. You step out in faith and you step out in courage as a beacon on the hill that you were meant to be, a light shining in the darkness, revealing to lost people that Jesus is alive, and he came to save those who are lost. He saved you when you were lost. He's going to save other people who are lost, and he's going to do it through you. I believe that. Let's allow him to do what's necessary in order to propel us into the city and into this world. Heavenly Father, Continue to speak to us today by your Holy Spirit. Shepherd us, Christ, with your rod and with your staff. Guide us along the path. If there were things that I got wrong or said in a wrong way or even said with the wrong spirit, I ask that you would just protect us and just remove those from our memory. Keep lodged into our minds what the Spirit would say to the church today. God, I just want to ask that you would give us a heart for the lost. May today mark a change. A more intense fire being burned more brightly within our hearts and our souls for people who don't know you. I pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit just as you did on the day of Pentecost to be able to bridge every gap and to speak any language, whether real or metaphorical, in order to reach people who have never known you. I pray that today as we sit at your feet, you would give us a vision of yourself and captivate us once again with your heart. Perhaps some of us, we need a renewal of our own salvation to return to our first love and to remember those things that captivated our hearts back in the old days. So do it, Lord. Meet us today. Cleanse us from unrighteousness and sin. Give us a passion for the right things. And give us a mission for your things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.